Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Back to the show. Uh, I think you're going to like uh, this conversation with Polina Hewitts. And, like, you're going to get a special appearance from her dog, Basil, uh, not to be confused with the early church father named also Basil. But you will um, you can hear more about that in a second. Uh, now let me tell you about our friends at Come and See. Come and See is an immersive surround sound audio treatment of the life and teachings of Jesus. The listener is dropped into the middle of the story as one of his first followers. It gives the listener the opportunity to experience what it might have been like to actually follow Jesus the entire project is three volumes with a projected runtime of six to eight hours. Now, the first three chapters of Volume 1 are already available for download. Those who pre-order will receive access to all the chapters as a release. Now, what makes this so unique is Come and See is the only version of the life of Jesus that treats the listener as a participant in the story, and it's the only version of the life of Jesus that includes every word and deed of Jesus from the four Gospels with one overarching narrative. Now, my listeners, Newsworthy Northry listeners, will get a 25% discount by simply using the code LUKE. LUKE. The price for pre-ordering the entire three-volume project drops from $20 to $15. Go to comeandseeaudio.com. All right, friends. There you go. Now get ready for Mindful Silence with Florina Hewitts. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Luke. It's great to be with you. Did I say your name right? You sure did. Mm-hmm. Felina. Okay, now mm-hmm. you you uh, are one of three other people who've ever had this honor of a husband and wife combo both being on the podcast with separate episodes. Mm, nice. You j- you join the Nequists. How do you say plural of Nequists? Nequists eyes. Because your husband was on not too long ago. So I'm assuming that is, this is a pretty big day for your family. Are you going to celebrate with something special to honor <laughs> the time that both of you are on the same podcast? Oh, you know what? It actually happens a lot. So I don't think we'll okay, that, uh, be celebrating today. Yeah, I feel like you could have spun that a little different, but you know, that's all right. Uh, <laughs> Luckily, I'm an Enneagram 7, so I'm going to reframe that to be a positive. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, what it, uh, you, you're an Enneagram teacher as well. What is your Enneagram number? I didn't even figure that out. Mm, so I identify as a 2. Mm-hmm. Yep. When I was thinking either 2 or 3, because some of the stuff mm-hmm. in the book about like differentiating yourself from people wanted and pleasing and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like how you say I identify as a 2. Like, Why did you not just say I'm a 2? What is the... Oh, yeah, well... You know, I've been working with the Enneagram for a long time, and I don't want to over-identify with the type, um, mm-hmm. because the type is essentially a personality. So I'm more interested in the essence of, you know, kind of living into my essence, which is beyond caricature. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm very excited for where this conversation is going, <laughs> just based on that one state. Like, that's next level. Like, your husband wrote a book on the Enneagram, but you're like, you know, I'm not going to identify because that's just the mask that I wear because it's my personality. Yeah. Does your, are, like, you and your husband, like, is he cool with you talking like that? Because in some ways you're like, I'm above just the Enneagram. Oh, well, <laughs> you know what? I learned it from him. So he, he's tracking with me when it comes to that. Really? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. My, my dad is a psychologist, and he said hearing your husband talking about the Enneagram was one of the most authenticating things he's heard about the Enneagram because your husband gave it so much nuance and layers to it. And so if we're going to go like this direction, if you guys are in the same school of thought, like I think my dad's going to like you as well. 
I hope so. I'd love to meet your dad. Okay. Well, I'll... Okay. Are you... <laughs> where, do you where do you live, by the way? Because I know you've been in Nebraska. Is that where you are now? Yes, Omaha. Mm-hmm. Omaha. Okay. Well, I'll tell my dad next time he goes to the college baseball World Series to stop by and see the... Oh my gosh, perfect. We're in walking distance. Our our little gravity center is in walking distance of the College World Series Stadium. Really? Yeah. That's pretty... I... Mm -hmm. I, Okay, first of all, my dad's never been to the College World Series, nor does he watch college baseball, so it's never going to actually happen. So I I feel like I got your optimism up a little bit too high. You totally led me astray. I know, but it's a neat town. I drove through it. I was doing something in uh, at a college in York maybe a year or two ago, and I drove through Omaha. Yeah. It's a neat little town, like right around the baseball thing, right in the middle. It's, it's yeah. nice. Yeah, yep. That's where we are, right in the heart of downtown. It's a nice little city. Okay. And you've also spent time, like, Kentucky-ish, right? Yeah, that's right. I, I went to um, university in Kentucky, so lived there for a few years after graduating. Do you, where were you born? Indianapolis, Indiana. Okay, I like that you refer to it as university, which is like the very like worldly, like I'm well-traveled because that's how non-Americans refer to college. Mm. And so I like to occasionally say I went to university because it just seems more like, oh, this is a well-cultured person. So yeah. I respect that you say it that way. Yeah, thanks. You know, well, lucky for me, um, the university I went to was actually a college that mm-hmm. later became an official university. So mm-hmm. I can, you know, say that truthfully. That's where I went wow. to university. Mm-hmm. Awesome. <laughs> was it tough for you for a while? Because you're like, I want to be like well-cultured and say it this way, but it, it's kind of a lie. Well, no, because I didn't start saying that until after it became a university. Okay. So you were all in the up and up. Mm, totally. Got to keep okay. it real. Good for you. Good for you. And you, um, R- Richard Rohr has played a big part in your life. One of your teachers. Mm-hmm. How, when did you first meet uh, Father Rohr? Oh, man. I, I don't know. When did I first meet him? It's been so long. Um, mm-hmm. Gosh. Probably around the time I took a sabbatical, uh, which was in t- 2007, mm-hmm. something like that. So maybe yeah. 11 or 12 years ago. But had been acquainted with his work uh, a little bit before that. And he was actually really generous with us because we were... Um, At that time in my life, my husband and I were co-directing an international nonprofit, and we were Mm -hmm. working with survivors of trafficking and children of war and all kinds of um, vulnerable people. And Richard was really endeared to our work. So Mm -hmm. when we came to learn of him and were really hungry for his teaching, he donated lots of DVDs and CDs and books of his Mm. um, for us and for our community. So we've been we've been uh, influenced by him for quite some time. Hmm, that's great. And it doesn't surprise me, his generosity. My experience with him has always been consistent with that. I mean, he's a very gracious person. And every yes. time I've been able to go out to the CAC, it's been a huge blessing to me. Uh, so, uh, obviously, okay, so you're connected to him. Uh, the, yeah. the influence of contemplation and action is obviously very connected to your work because you've been, like you said, you've been in some of like the absolute worst places of the world. The story you tell uh, in the book about... Um, Sierra, Sierra Leone, am I saying yeah. that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. About the survivors of amputations and attacks, and then even the soldiers on the other side. Like, that was heartbreaking for mm. me. And I know that 
you've been doing that for, for a long time. One of the things you say in the book is that often people who are these social justice warriors can become the grumpiest people because they carry on them the weight of the world. You've been doing this, uh, give me the time frame. How long have you been doing this sort of work? Mm. Well, let's see, since 1995. Okay. Yeah. So you, and you started right out of college and you've been doing for a few decades now. Mm. Early on, did you see this as the trajectory of what you wanted your life's work to be? Well, actually, as I grew up in a Christian home, my father was a pastor, and um, it was a, a, a simple and um, kind of sheltered life that I grew up in. And at a young age, I had this desire to be a missionary. Mm-hmm. So it was a very kind of simple call. I was influenced by a few different um, missionaries that I was acquainted with um, as a kid. And that desire grew, um, but I didn't know like how it would be fleshed out. Like we, my family was not well traveled. I mean, we really didn't go anywhere outside of the tri-state area of Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So the thought of kind of traveling and and relocating around you know some place outside of the states was kind of a far off dream. So as things unfolded. Um, I clarified um, in college uh, a call to serve people in poverty, and everything kind of came together uh, with meeting my husband, Chris, and getting involved in this kind of budding little social justice organization, which at that time in the evangelical church, there really wasn't uh, an appreciation or affinity for social justice work. Most of the uh, service kinds of work or mission type work was really centered on church planting and evangelization. Mm-hmm. So what we were doing was outside of the box, and it was um, fairly radical for the subculture that we were a part of. Hmm. And so that leads you into this journey that you've been doing since 1995. It's taking you some uh, some places where there is a great deal of adversity and suffering uh, all around the world. Hmm. And so for someone who, whose life work has been that, to write a book about contemplation, for some would seem like a completely disjointed project. But for mm. you, you see them deeply connected. How so? Mm. Yeah, great um, perception there. You know, it's interesting because we were um, really inclined toward social justice and action oriented very much about changing the world, doing whatever we could to make the world a better place. And, um, and in that effort, we ended up, my husband and I overseeing this organization with about 300 people working in 13 cities across the globe. And it was intense and we were traveling all the time. Um, we were, deeply devoted to our staff and the communities that we were serving. Uh, and here comes Basil. He's back from his little walk. For the listeners, that is a dog named Basil, not <laughs> yeah. the church father. Okay, Basil, you need to relax, okay? Yeah, good boy. So, um, oh, this will be interesting. So, um, You're doing great. Yeah, you can edit out whatever you need to. No, we're going to leave it in. I think it's nice. It's charming. (laughs) If only people could see him, then they'd be really hooked. Uh, So right now he's standing on the back of my couch. 
I'm not sure if he wants to stay in here or go back out there with Betty. Hmm. But at any rate, uh, so we were um, deeply devoted to our people and the work that we were doing. But about eight years in, I had um, an intense experience in Freetown. And it began to kind of shatter all of my paradigms about God and about myself and about other people in the world that we live in. And it was like, for the first eight years, I was operating from a limited worldview that um, knew that things weren't right and someone's to blame and we need to do whatever we can to kind of um, help people understand their responsibility for the conditions of people living in poverty and um, make things right. And my experience in Freetown shattered a lot of my preconceived notions of reality and um, kind of pushed me into a crisis of faith, which then led me to meet Thomas Keating and Richard Rohr and um, learn of the contemplative tradition. So I needed a spirituality that could hold the paradoxes and contradictions um, that were shattering my, um, my experience of life. Can, can you explain a little bit more? You're saying Freetown. Um, for some who, who don't have familiarity with that, tell us more about what that experience is. Yeah, so some of the listeners might be familiar with a film called um, Blood Diamonds. came out several years back, and um, it, was a, it was a really clear um, depiction of what was happening there. But at any rate, uh, it was like 2000, late, the late 90s and early 2000, 2002, um, there was this horrible civil war being fought in West Africa in the little country of Sierra Leone over conflict diamonds or blood diamonds. And um, it was a war between the government and rebel soldiers who wanted control of these diamonds because obviously they were bringing in a lot of money from the affluent um, Western um, countries in particular. And so uh, we found ourselves there um, trying to do what we could to respond to the, um, the plight of thousands and thousands of displaced people in that country and um, I, while I was visiting there um, during my first visit, I was with some uh, young girls who had um, been conscripted into the war as what they called war brides, which meant that they were subjected to domestic and sexual um, slavery, really. And um, these young girls were, um, you know, they just lived through unspeakable trauma of what happened to them and their families and uh, and so after meeting them, uh, I met the perpetrators of, of the crimes that they'd endured, um, these soldiers who I had really demonized the day before and then um, found them to be not so dissimilar to the young girls that I'd met the day before. Um, some of these boys were as young as five, um, and they were dressed in rags, and they had suffered um, similar atrocities to their family and were conscripted um, as soldiers. They were given drugs, uh, eventually guns that were too heavy for them to carry, and um, eventually young girls um, to assault. And they were facing the um, unimaginable uh, dilemma of being reintegrated into a society that they had um, committed these crimes against. So I found myself in the in the center of 
human brutality and suffering at a scale that I'd not experienced before. And, um, and it was hard to find someone to blame because, uh, it was as, you know, it's like the victims became oppressors and everywhere you kind of, as you follow the line of, um, of oppressors, you find that they are also victims in some way. And so if, um, if there was now no longer any clear, um, person responsible for the suffering, then God must be to blame. You know, this is the way my mind was working. And so for a a young girl, you know, a a young woman at that point who had grown up um, in the middle of America in a very sheltered Christian home um, where there were basically answers for everything uh, and certainty was um, kind of the guiding light of that kind of faith. Um, now I wasn't certain about anything, and um, and I was very uncertain about God, and it just opened me up to, you know, all the big questions of um, who is God, and what is God like, and is there a God, and if there's a God, why is there suffering? Yeah. And so this led me into the contemplative path. Now, it, it could seem that contemplation was a way to withdraw and remove yourself from the world's pain, and to say, okay, there's so much... Uh, so much pain, so much darkness out here that I, I can't comprehend. Doesn't th- there's no box to put this in? The who's the the bad guy here? I mean, the the perpetrators, the the attackers are in some ways victims themselves. And so I'm just going to contemplate as a way to like withdraw from the world's pain. But you actually referred to you know withdrawn as a way of holding the world's pain. Contemplation holds it together. How is contemplation not withdrawing, but it's actually holding? Mm. Yeah. So for. You know, just to speak from my experience, I was, um, you know, I was really coming undone and um, psychologically and spiritually and socially, I was losing my sense of uh, my compass really for life. And, uh, and it was so disorienting and I couldn't pray and it was like pointless to go to church because what did the local pastor in Omaha, Nebraska have to say about the reality that I knew was out there, you know, in terms of these kinds of um, injustices and suffering. And so uh, it, it was in, it was in the context of this kind of spiritual darkness that I, um, you know, met in particular Thomas Keating, Cistercian monk, who's recently passed away. Um, and he introduced me to the Christian contemplative tradition in this practice called centering prayer. And it was like, finally, I had a way to be with what is, so instead of an escape, it was actually a way to be with it. And I think this is really the, um, the magic of contemplation and any good psychotherapy is that liberation, freedom, healing, wholeness comes by way of being with what is rather than trying to escape it or mm-hmm. um, avoid it, right? Yeah. And okay. so, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, we're going to come back to what that local pastor should have said about that at some point. Okay, so we're going to hold a pin in that. But um, So, <laughs> contemplation. Yeah. One of the things you say about it in the book is that many modern fascinations with mindfulness or contemplation focus on secondary benefits of what contemplation does. So, can, can you flesh out and say, like, what are some of the modern secondary benefits that, or that, mm-hmm. that people are focused on, and what is it actually mm-hmm. trying to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. So, I'm sorry, basal is like 
knocking at my door. I have to keep my door closed because there's other people in the office, but then Basil doesn't like closed doors. Mm. He likes everybody to be in one room. He needs so he needs to learn how to withdraw and have some solitude. That's right. That's, that's right. That's right. So we're going to put him in the chair right here. Okay, good boy. Now lay down. That could lay be your down. next book. You can write a book on yes, good boy. canine spirituality. Good boy. I think that would be... <laughs> something for you oh he's the best you know there's nothing like meditating with a dog in your lap mm. he's so terrific okay i think he's calmed down now so let's see where were we what was the okay question? modern fascinations with contemplation focusing on secondary benefits what are those yes. secondary benefits and then what is the actual yes. heart of contemplation yes okay so there are all kinds of studies now now this is just in the last like 50 years have we seen science come together with meditation or contemplative practice. So before that, uh, there it was kind of this division between the East and the West, and there wasn't an appreciation in science for spirituality. But about 50 years ago, um, due to um, a, a Buddhist named John Kabat-Zinn, um, there, he really forged the way to bring together scientific study um, and contemplative practice, so looking at consciousness from a scientific standpoint. And what we found was that, um, and I don't know if I need to maybe clarify, so um, even though I'm talking about a Buddhist and Buddhist practice that started to come into the um, science laboratory, if you will, um, there are newer studies being done with Christian contemplative practice, but the point being that these um, contemplative practices across religions um, have similar benefits. Mm-hmm. So, so here we are um, 50 years later now seeing um, these studies come in that are showing physical benefits like reduction of high blood pressure, high blood sugar, um, a reduction in um, heart disease, um, in decreasing inflammation in the body, which leads to disease in the first place. Uh, so all kinds of physical benefits, including, um, you know, helping people sleep better and even, um, it's been linked to better sex. Um, so it's like, if I don't, if, if, if that doesn't get people to meditate or enter yeah. into contemplative prayer, I'm not sure what will. I don't know so, why you didn't <laughs> use that as like a subtitle, three steps for a better sex life. It seems like that would, you could put that book then on like the checkout line at a grocery store and it would sell more. Totally, totally. What was I thinking? I don't know. I'm not sure the publisher would have gone for that, but maybe I'll try it in an article or something. Okay, so physical benefits like that. And then um, there are psychological benefits, decreasing anxiety and depression, for example. Uh, But um, all the religious traditions agree that Contemplative practice was designed really for the destruction of the self. So rather than um, pursuing it for these kinds of health benefits, while those may be wonderful um, side effects, that's not what contemplative practice was designed for. Mm -hmm. You say that what you find in contemplation is death. That that's not a good line that you should put on the magazine cover if you're doing the magazine of contemplation. How come the destruction of self, how come death is what we find in contemplation? And what does that look like? Mm, yeah. Well, from a Christian standpoint, it makes perfect sense um, in terms of the invitation from Jesus is really to, you know, bid them come and die, right? Mm-hmm. Like, take up your cross, follow me. Um, this idea of 
taking up an instrument of our death, it's like, what does that mean? Like, none of us are being invited to a literal crucifixion. But as we study the Gospels and, um, and the teachings of Paul in particular, we find this invitation into a, a, another self, another way of being. Paul calls it the new creation. Um, there's the invitation to um, be identified with Christ in this new creation, um, to let the Christ life essentially be lived in and through us. So if that's the invitation, then something has to die in a way for that part of us to live. Um, Paul has this great line about why is it I do what I don't want to do and what I don't want to do, that's the very thing I do. Well, and he, and he illuminates that there's this war um, in, within himself, and it's this it's really a universal human condition issue that he's addressing, this, um, this battle between what we might call the false self and the true self, or the mm. old self and the new self. So earlier you talked about uh, not wanting to identify as, a t- or not saying you are, what, is, what was your language? I messed it up already. I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to over-identify oh, okay. as a two. Over-identify. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, the Greek word for personality, you reference this in the book, uh, comes from the word for mask. So our, our mask, our personality is a mask. It's false self. Paul will talk about as his former self, what has been crucified. Contem- contemplation, the contemplative life, gets us to our truer self. Uh, obviously, Merton gave us that language, false self, true self. Um, so is it death? Is, is that the way that we get there? The way to find our truest self, the, the truest person that, that God created us to be? is through this, this dying process of the old way? Absolutely. But it, it comes by way of um, d- the little deaths that we suffer in an intentional, um, when we're on it, like an intentional path for, for truth and liberation. So mm-hmm. it's the little deaths of, like, um, of the ways in which we've over-identified with our personality. Now we're going to begin to die to that. We're going to begin to die to that attachment. So for example, I, I identify as a two on the Enneagram, which means that if I'm not careful and in my old self, I over identify with the need to be needed. Mm -hmm. So I find my sense of love and acceptance through meeting the needs of other people. Um, when I embarked on the contemplative path, all of that began to come into view so that it's like I woke up to realize, like, that's not who I am. Like, I'm so much more than that. And But then what happens is I'm confronted with all the ways in which I feel loved and accepted when I meet the needs of others. So I, now I have the invitation to die to um, being driven by that compulsion to meet all the needs of the people in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, And when I begin to die to that, then these new opportunities and realities and, and, and really um, more of my essence begins to come to life. Yeah. So like, for example, I couldn't have written my first book, Pilgrimage of a Soul, if I had, been, um, if I had not learned to die to that over-attachment to my need to be needed, to meet the needs of other people, because there would have never been any room for me to pursue this like the writing of a book, for example, um, because there were too many needs in my life of other people that needed me. Like there wasn't room to pursue that kind of endeavor, you know? Yeah. And, and it's like, yeah, it's just this really subtle invitation um, 
the spiritual journey, the invitation of Christ is just really subtle in terms of waking up to our true essence and being free to follow Jesus, really. And, and in my life, it, lo- it looked like that. It looked like, you know, publishing my first book. It, lo- it looked like leaving the evangelical church, actually. And it looked like um, studying yoga and um, these different things that a lot of conservative Christians, fundamentalists, would find very problematic. But um, when I was overly concerned about what other people thought about me, and what they needed from me, I could never have chosen, freely chosen these these other pursuits that actually opened me up to be of greater service in the world. Yeah, yeah. Because like the fundamentalists like to tell us, if you have the ability to move well with your body and you have flexible muscles, that's a sin. So don't do yoga. Um, not, I feel like that's someone said that before. Um, okay, so you're, you're trying to figure out your your truest self, who, who God wants you to be. Um, in the book, you say that you constantly have three voices in your head. You have your false self, your true self, and often the person that you're trying to please. And mm. the work of contemplation is helping you discern what's my false self, what is this people-pleasing thing that your two personality would conform you to be, and then what's your true self? How, how does contemplation help you discern the right thing to do? Mm. So... One of the ways that I like to address this is through this simple kind of matrix through solitude, silence, and stillness. So uh, traditional cont- uh, Christian contemplation is really centered around these elements of solitude, silence, and stillness. So when we practice any degree of interior solitude, we develop this capacity to be more present, to be mm-hmm. more present to ourselves, to God, and to others. When we practice silence, we develop this capacity to listen to ourselves, to God, and to others. And when we practice stillness, we develop this capacity for restraint uh, or self-control, which also has the element of discernment in it. And so, really, when you when you practice in this way over time, you develop like a sixth sense of being able to discern and parse all the different competing voices and determine really, you know, what is me, what is the divine and, you know, what is false self, what is true self. And then you find greater and greater freedom to choose, you know, essentially the good, the true and the beautiful, which is always God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I believe there's a a reference in your book that to Ignatius making a a point about in both our good motives and our, our bad motives that, that, that God is somehow in the midst of all of that. Mm-hmm. And that discernment helps us to be able to see that maybe what's underneath all these, these, these pulls or draws that we have. Mm-hmm. And how does contemplation help us yeah, with does, that? Yeah. yeah, well, you know, it really begins with self-awareness. So contemplation truly begins by helping us become more self-aware. And um, self-awareness is the beginning of liberation. So as we begin to pay closer attention, we're, be, we're becoming more and more present rather than living in the past, like fretting about the past or worrying about the future. We're more right here, right now, which you know God can only be experienced in the present, right here and right now. And so the more and more we become present, the more we become really in touch with and aligned with the presence of God. Yeah. And, and then with um, just be, being able to listen more 
more deeply than once we're present, then we can hear because we're not like, we're not competing with all these other energies and forces that are, or voices that are, um, really trigger like connected to our past or our future. It's like all of that gets silenced so that we can be really present and open and hearing like in the moment. And, um, and then that, that stillness, when we practice stillness and we're developing a greater capacity for restraint and self-control, see what's happening is when we get triggered, we're not um, as inclined to react out of that triggering um, rather, we can get some distance and some space from kind of a stopgap from that initial knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. And now we've got, you know, this restraint so that we can respond out of that depth of presence and that that capacity for listening. Uh, and it just, it, it's so empowering, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So y- y- you learn to be aware of yourself, uh, learn to restrain the bad impulses of like how you want to react instead of respond. And when you're functioning not out of depth, but out of your personality, your false self. And so you you learn to have this awareness of yourself. And in in the book, you also talk about a type of self-awareness that that not many of us connect to healthy spirituality, but an actual body wisdom that 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 your your body isn't disconnected from your spiritual experience. Uh, You correlate uh, some neck, I think it was neck or jaw pain and mm. understanding that. How do you connect this like understanding and awareness of your body and it being integrated into your spirituality? Mm. Well, this is another reason why I find Christianity so attractive is, is this incarnational nature of spirituality. So you've got uh, spirit uh, being integrated with matter so they're not separate Mm -hmm. and it's uh, it's too bad that we've inherited this idea that spirit and matter are 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 not um you know together Mm -hmm. that somehow we have to escape the body to get to spirit or something but in jesus we see that no this is all integrated um that spirit and matter are one and uh and so to be um more in like to have that starting point then gives us more reverence for mm-hmm. the wisdom of the body. Um, and, you know, these parts of us, mind, body, spirit, it, it's just really unfortunate that many of us have received a spiritual formation that teaches that somehow we have to be spiritual, which is like divorced from the rest of us. It's like, no, it's all integrated. And, and the mind also is, um, you know, it's something that, can play tricks on us, but our, our Western Christianity has really been um, much more informed by the intellectual, rational mind, which yep. sometimes can be deceptive, actually. And so the integration of all of these intelligence centers, uh, I think, is, is really the key so that they can all work together. And wh- where there is more harmony, there is, I think, more truth and wisdom to be found. Yeah, I, I think that divide... Is, is so accurate of in the West, it's, it's rational. We're children of the enlightenment. It's how do you think? Uh, what is your, like, belief becomes, I think these certain things about who God is and Jesus is, and that means I'm a good Christian. It's the, it's, the, it's the orthodoxy over the orthopraxy. And so it's just all intellectual. It's in our mind. The East, I think, helps us see and experience things in ways that the West might uh, hinder us from doing and so we're we're trying to have a spirituality that Im, that is truly embodied. So a, as a yogi, like how do you see your practice of 
your physicality of taking care of yourself as mm. connected to your spirituality. Mm. Yeah, well, it, there's nothing better in, in my experience um, than to have a yoga practice because that really began to awaken me to the wisdom of my body. And, um, and, and I started having experiences uh, where the physical practice then helped to um, open up uh, my heart, my mind, my spirit in ways where it might have been shut down before. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've found these subtle um, connection points of, of realizing uh, how integrated I am. And that's just allowed me to be, um, yeah, to be more aligned with the spirit of God in my life, more mm-hmm. alive to the spirit of God in my life, because my body is alive in ways that it wasn't before. I think a lot of us live kind of divorced from the body. We're living so much in the head and all the while the body is um, trying to get our attention in different ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It seems that there's, there's like going back to the magazine rack at the grocery store. There's that level of fitness where it's, you know, get your beach body ready. And Mm -hmm. that's the main voice that we have in our culture about what, taking care of yourself looks like and Mm -hmm. the other options well i'm not going to do anything uh there Mm -hmm. seems to be like neither of those are good options there seems to be a a spirituality that i think that that, like you said the incarnation can point us to that that Mm -hmm. sees the goodness of god in creation sees the goodness of god in our physicality and to see Mm -hmm. that as um as a connection because part of the the spiritual experience of christianity is it something that you you taste and you see, you, you physically experience it? And to divorce mm-hmm. that, I, I think you miss part of it. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I love what you're doing with that. I, I appreciate the, the voice in that. Let's circle back to that question that I told you I was going to come back to. Um, mm-hmm. The local pastor who has doesn't know what to say about the tragedy of Freetown, uh, the, the blood diamond conflict, um, doesn't have a word to say. And I think part, mm-hmm. sometimes our good news is truly not good news because it's only good news if you live in certain places of the world and you only have certain mm-hmm. experiences of life. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think that pastor in small town USA should be saying about conflicts like that? What is a, a word of good news that, that she or he could be saying? Mm. Yeah, something about how to be actually with your suffering um, when it's unresolvable. Um, I think this is where we, we kind of struggle. We want, we want our suffering, like we want things to be packaged and we want things to be resolved. And sometimes life isn't resolvable, mm-hmm. you know? And so then it's like, so then what do you do? And how do you find some kind of liberation within your circumstances. And this is, I think, the message that is for all of us, no matter the suffering, no matter what kind of suffering it is, um, how do we find liberation and um, a way to be with what is painful? Mm. And I think that's the good news when we can figure that out. Like, So in my own life, there have been a lot of different circumstances that have created a lot of pain and suffering in my life. Um, if good news is, you know, 
the good news is your suffering will end. The good news is the pain will end. If that's it, then then that's a very limited audience that can experience that kind of good news. Um, because what about chronic pain? What about the child who who dies? What about um, the divorce that or the marriage that ends and, and the person didn't want it to end? You know, how do you contend with um, real pain and suffering? How do you find some kind of meaning within all of that? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. You, you quote Keith, uh, Thomas Keating in the book when you say that um, silence is God's language. And there's something about, I, I think in, in silence, that healthy silence like makes space for two competing narratives of, of the tension of this is not resolvable, of, of paradox. And it, it, it gives us an opportunity to hold both of the, those things together. H- how do you think that works? Hmm. I think I'm going to need you to reframe the question <laughs> only because I have this head cold and <laughs> my mind is not as sharp this morning. I, I appreciate that, that you re- reframed that and made it about you, not about the poor question that I asked. <laughs> Kini says silence is God's language. and First language. Mm-hmm. God, is, he, God has many languages. Silence is God's first language. First language. What do you mm. think God's second language is? English, right? <laughs> English, right? <laughs> It's got to be English. Got to be. Got to be English. Yeah, isn't the Bible written in English? I mean, it's got to be God's. First yeah, language, I mean, the message right? is written in English, so that's <laughs> clearly God's second choice. Uh, how, how does silence make space for paradox? It seems that for mm-hmm. some, like you get silence, and all of a sudden, the two competing voices get louder and louder. Mm. So this is this is the mystery where it is in the silence helping us to stay with the paradox Mm -hmm. then breaks open something else, some third force. Mm -hmm. So you've got paradox, kind of two opposing forces. When you can sit with that, something new breaks open. It's like the seed that falls to the ground and dies. It breaks open and new life comes forth. It's the cross in which we are pulled in two different directions and we die, and resurrected life comes forth. And this seems you know, very lofty, but it's in a very practical way. This happens if we can open to it in our daily life, in our circumstances of life. So we're experiencing some kind of conflict in relationship to someone else. Instead of getting all triggered and reactive, we can sit in the pain and the struggle of that circumstance, and no one can predict what kind of new life is going to come from that. But if we develop the skill of sitting with that, I guarantee new life is going to come from that. Mm-hmm. And it's I've seen it over and over in my life. And that's the good news, that there's actually life in the midst of death, that there's resurrection when there's crucifixion, like that in our daily life, when we're having these kind of sufferings and paradoxes and contradictions, when we can develop the skill to sit with it, we open up to really the kingdom of God. Mm. That's good. That's good. But it can't be prescribed, yeah. you know, and you're not going to get it in just one sermon. Like you have to like live this. You have to learn the skills of living into the reign of God in your life. And it is this other reality um, that is like, 
it's it's other because it's like it's bigger and broader and wider than our limited constructs of what we think about who we are and who others are and the nature of reality. Mm. That's good. Uh, to be fair, though, you've never heard any of my sermons, so maybe they, they <laughs> one of those might, might fix it. But if not... I know, I'm being really hard on the local pastor, aren't I? It's all right. It's all right. I mean... It's tough to be you. Thank you. It is tough to be That's you. what I was trying to say. It's, it's all about me, and let's bring it back to me and my, my <laughs> circumstance. Uh, the book, Mindful Silence, uh, thank you for writing it. I enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today, even with a head cold, which it sounds like you mustered through quite well. Thank you. It's really nice to be with you. I appreciate your time. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.